0: Unlikely Pilgrims, a podcast hosted by historians Dan Spanger and Mark Draper, where we discuss issues facing the church today in the area of politics, culture, education, the arts, from a historical bent to help the citizens of the city of God negotiate life in the city of man, where we seek to create a safe space to have difficult conversations. If you like what you hear, you can follow us and read our blog at unlikelypilgrims.com. You can subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook, and you can also email us at unlikelypilgrims at gmail.com. Well, Dr. Spanger, uh, another episode of Unlikely Pilgrims. We're going to introduce this. Um, this time, we're bringing on a friend of mine mm-hmm. who I worked with, uh, Dr. Ron Beauchamp, mm-hmm. and uh, who pastors uh, an African American church. Uh, red space in a primarily Caucasian church so that's an interesting dynamic <laughs> right, in there right. and uh, so how would you want to prep our listeners to, to kind of think yeah this I, conversation and
1: Brad. I think there's things with with our other interviewees too that I'm learning is just that I've got to listen a lot to what the contexts are and I think what what happens sometimes is we hear the words before we hear the context the framing the experiences and so we start making judgments um, and I and I think for me as well as listeners wherever you end up on these issues is not to not to hear your position first, then you don't never leave it. You may, you may come to the same conclusion, but try to hear out what experiences and how he's come to those experiences and allow that just to carry the way to a fellow brother in Christ who's wrestling through these things. And then you may return to your opinion the same way that you you found it. Right. But it's, um, but at the same time, you may not, you may find out oh, there's new information I didn't learn. So I think there's just an opportunity as, as Dr. Draper said in our, in our previous uh, introduction is just, Allow this space to sit for a minute with you. just, just yeah, allow this yeah. allow yourself to listen.
0: And I think one of the nice things about bringing on guests from various uh, places, right I mean all the people that we, we were bringing on for this conversation have all gone to seminary, That's right. uh, advanced degrees and that kind of thing yet they live in that tension world where yeah. they, they might learn the theories and, in, in the academy That's right. but then That's right. they, they're practitioners. Right. right. So they're practitioners, which is a very different thing, and I think that's a challenge to even us because right. we live so much in the academy, and we may talk about things like critical race theory, Christian nationalism, right. right, and we know the academic answers, right, and and we think, okay, well, this is how you should define it, yeah. But that might not be how people on the ground actually are defining it, right? Um, it's 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 my theory about you need to talk about the evangelical elite, right, versus. You know, and I think with these two conversations, we also find out there's an African American elite yeah, in the academy, whether it's James Cone That's or right. someone of that, uh, or, or uh, uh, Cornell West. But then there's the pastor just trying to get his congregation through the week.
1: That's right. That's right. And yeah. I think you're right. You you actually have to listen to both all sides of that. Yeah. And know that they're not. I think as evangelical leader, whatever we're doing in the academy is, is a valuable thing, but it's not the whole thing. Yes. And to hear what people have to wrestle through on the street as they're dealing with congregations, we can sometimes abstract, oh, you're using the wrong words, you're trying to connect, and really they're just trying to serve and love people that are grappling with problems in their own daily lives. So I think you're right. It's almost a sense in you've got to be able to, willing to leave the one and go into the other for a little bit of time just to hear it. And I. And I reiterate again, you, you may not change your mind, but that doesn't mean you don't, you don't hear this out for yeah. the space out of which it's being given to us. Yeah,
0: and it demonstrates the complexity of the people yeah. of God. Amen. Amen. Well, all right. Well, Dan, we've got another guest today on Unlikely Pilgrims. All right. Um, we're on a roll. We keep bringing in non-Augustinians. <laughs> uh, we brought in a Mennonite. Uh, now we have a Black Baptist pastor. <laughs> um, I think he's kind of Augustinian. He gave me some books yeah. of Augustine when he was cleaning out his closet once, but uh, maybe he was just trying to get rid of them. I don't know. And uh, so we, we have with us today the good Reverend Dr. Uh, Ronald Beauchamp, who is a close friend of mine. Uh, we worked together for a number of years. He now has a book that he's written that we're going to talk a little bit about um i've always respected dr beauchamp uh, i call him the rev uh he was kind of the pastor uh, of the world we used to work in so he'll always be rev to me uh so if you hear me calling him rev that's why um taught me a lot about how to process some of the stuff we're dealing with today in our culture even some of the ideas we've talked about in our on our podcast um when I'm trying to figure out what's going on with race in our country, uh, even if Rev wasn't on the podcast, I would still email him and say, "Hey, can we process to talk about this? Help me see help me see a different perspective." So I want to introduce. I want to allow him to introduce himself. Dr. Beauchamp, welcome to Unlikely Pilgrims.
2: Oh, welcome. I feel welcome, I should say. Uh, Thank you so much for the opportunity, Dr. Mark Draper and our Dr. Daniel Spangler. I appreciate both of you guys opening the doors for me. I bring you greetings from Bethel New Life Church here in Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, This is the fourth church I've had the privilege to serve. I've had two church plants, one church that was six to eight years in age and another one that was 30 some years in age. And thank God I'm in this church plant because I don't have to do any deacon boards or any people <laughs> that keep restricting my conversation and my direction. So it's a joy to be online with you on this podcast.
0: Great, great. Brad, right, you want to talk a little bit about how we've kind of knew each other, how we've worked
2: together in the past? Oh Yeah, yeah. we had the privilege to work together in a place called the Niebuhr Center for Faith and Action at Elmhurst College. Uh, I was a graduate of the institution, class of 689, and then came back to work there because as a student there, there were no African-American professors. So I came back and made a pledge to myself that I would do this. Uh, In the short time that I was there, I served as residence hall director, worked in student affairs, but then was given this charge to be the associate director of the center. As my director decided to go back to the to the department of uh, uh, religion, uh, I was given the charge to be the come become the next director, and then I had to find an associate. So. Uh, Dr. Mark Draper is my second associate in the department, and he was just a delight to have on board. Uh, He pushed me, he challenged me, he made me think outside the box. We sat there many nights after hours of the doors closing and still had students hanging around or just dialogued about a variety of subject matters. And so to come back today and still be able to say we're friends, colleagues, and working from a distance, thank God for all this technology, uh, he was a gift in that area as well. Um, I'm happy to say that we're still talking. <laughs> we're still talking and still rumbling and rambling about issues of faith and tradition and church and the Black Church and what's going on in our communities today. So um, the relation was great, and, and it still is good now. Uh, was privileged to uh, you know just see how God is evolving in his life and how he's developing. But even today, you know, he brings on another guy who I think is just like him. So it's interesting that we have this conversation with him and Dan today. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it.
0: Good. good. Thank you. Yeah.
2: And so what we've been trying
0: to do um, if anyone for the listeners, we've been trying to process the divisions in the church. Um, a lot of churches are divided um, mm-hmm. over the issues of politics, uh, race, uh the virus, <laughs> right? We, we've talked about- What isn't,
1: yeah, what doesn't include it in that list?
0: Yeah, I don't know anymore. Um, we, we've we spent some time talking about Christian nationalism, about Trumpism, about critical race theory, all to some of these ideas. Uh, and long before even the podcast, I, I I called Rev and said, are you seeing this? Are you seeing this in these in your churches? Yeah. Um, actually received emails and texts from former students who were either pastoring churches now or- and that's what really kind of got the the bee in my bonnet for this conversation, Dan, when we first started. Yeah. And I said, Dan, how do we process this? Yeah. Uh, when, when people we've sent off to ministry are now calling us up saying, what is going, my church is, is split. Exactly. Um, and how do I how do I handle this? And I said, I don't know, call Rev. And so. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. <laughs> what <I'm> doing. Where <laughs> yeah. we're at. Yeah, yeah, that that was always the answer I had when we worked together. Well, ah, that's a good that's place right.
1: to start maybe, isn't it? So so Rev can you can you tell us about what you've experienced in your church as a
2: pastor? Yeah, of, like what, yeah.
0: what's going on where in your experience in the church? You, you and I had some conversations offline that I think are super helpful with everything well, that you've been going through.
2: Well, let's look at the last year or so coming yeah. from the end of 2019 through the early part of 2020. Before the pandemic took hold of our congregations, we saw in the Black church a lot of our senior pastors passing away. Uh, Reverend Clay Evans from Chicago, which was a, a major stalwart in the, in the city of Chicago. And then we saw others around him, others, sta- um, you know, just legends in their own right here and across the nation starting to leave us. So we're starting to see that happening. So, Next wave of of ministers in the the community and pastors, we were starting to question amongst ourselves, who's going to take leadership? Who's going to do these things? Even uh, the Chicago Baptist Institute, which was an institute that was designed to train um, young Black ministers, both male and female, at a reasonable discounted rate because they couldn't afford seminary. We saw the leadership change there. We saw people uh, abandoning ship. And so the the CBI, Chicago Baptist Institute, is working on rebuilding itself. So we've been calling in some of those conversations to try to help them. But what we saw when the pandemic hit was this disconnect. Uh, African-Americans or Blacks, allow me to use this interchangeably, um, found themselves struggling during this season because we are worshipers. We love the art of going to church to worship, Mm -hmm. love to sing, love to clap, love to play the drums, love to play various chords, be it blues or jazz on the organ saying it's church music, whatever. We do these things and we're excited about that. We get together and we don't just do the regular get together and hug or the passing of the peace moment. We get together from the moment we're in there. And sometimes we sit there after church like we don't want to leave. So to have the pandemic tell us, you can't come into the church, you can't sing, you can't do all the things because you're going to pass out droplets was a crushing blow to the the Black experience. So I've had several of my uh, Black pastors, you know, go back into their churches put up a praise team and said, well, we got to do something. I can only have 10 or 15 people, but I got to do something. I can't sit there. So they got them standing six and seven feet apart from each other with microphones, trying to provide the music and the atmosphere. And they're all doing things through technology now that they haven't used before. A lot of pastors have not been on Facebook, did not use Twitter, did not uh, communicate with their congregants. So they were struggling. And so it's learning this and, and figuring out new ways to do things, Zooming every meeting from Sunday school to Bible study to special conferences, uh, doing virtual events. I mean, this is all part of what we're watching. So these last eight to nine to 10 months have been challenging. But I saw uh, a new wave of, of pastors rising up with the skill sets that desire this to move forward. However, in this season, we also lost a lot of churches uh, and or pastors, I should say, pastors walked away, said it was too much, I can't handle this, and left their churches vacant. Mm. And without a search committee or ability to do a a thorough search during that season, a lot of churches stayed without, and a lot of deacon boards or church leaders or former pastors or old saints have been sustaining these churches. It's been an unusual season to watch this, but um, that's what's been going on in the church. So when you talk about even the division, uh, the division has come in because during this season, a lot of people blamed the former administration, president and former administration for what happened. How did COVID-19 get out of control so fast? How has it negatively impacted our churches? How did it impact our jobs and the income and or the unemployment that we were going through? And um, people were upset with the former administration and praying for a new administration people divided up in the churches because not all black people are Democrats. Mm -hmm. Not all black people, (laughs) they don't do that. So there's a whole nother level there when you talk about politics. Uh, We're very conservative in nature, very conservative in our appreciation for our relation with God. And the only reason that you see a lot of African-Americans in the democratic convention is because the Republican convention doesn't respect us or welcome us to the table appropriately. And the, uh, the discomfort is worse than what it would be. So neither party is winning the award right now. It's just one is leading or letting the other one participate. I hope that answers your question. No, it does. You said something really interesting too. I mean,
0: the whole country's just been traumatized by COVID-19. Yes. Um, and, but something you said in this and even offline that I think is very insightful for the, the black church experience is that being together in worship is so important. It is. Uh, and it's so much part of historically how the black church has dealt with trauma mm-hmm. for 400 years. Exactly. And, and here we are with a, a pandemic, unlike anything we've seen in a hundred years and maybe for the first time, uh, e- I mean, even in slavery, mm-hmm. African-Americans found a way to worship even in, in the quiet, woods, in the woods, right? <laughs> and and here we have a situation where there's absolute trauma going on on economic, political, me- health, mental, and the very place that has always been the safe haven and the uh, the counselor, the the balm, as it were. You can yeah. you can't use it. You can't have it.
2: I and have an I associate know. minister right now who is struggling with the fact that we can't gather and meet. He loves to sing. He loves to be in the uh, confines of the of the body of Christ and be there to hug and receive love, you know? He can't get it. So he asked me there, why can't we do this? Why can't we? And I said, well, CDC guidelines won't let us. Uh, the church that we're renting from won't let us, you know? And so there's another body that's controlling our relationship right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's very disturbing. So we're seeing mental illness on the increase mm-hmm. because you're not able to... Release yourself. Now, I used to tell people all the time. I said, the beautiful thing about the black church was, uh, forgive me, gentlemen, but the white church and the white world was so cruel sometimes that the black church was the one place we could go to scream, shout, run around, roll on the ground and jump up and say, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I made it. Got through another week and no one locked us up. Right, right. The the challenge is that you can't scream and yell at your boss. You can't scream and yell on your job. You yeah. can't scream and yell in the community. They will put you in a straitjacket and take you away. Yeah. But in the black church, you can say, they've been so cruel to me. They've been so mean to me. And then say, ah, oh, thank you, Jesus, I mean.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So. It's, it's, it's when, when, when everything on the social distancing started, Dan, I was like, well, we're Presbyterians. We've been doing that before pandemic. So no, and we'll shows, be fine. We'll be fine. <laughs> in that." Yeah. Social distancing is how we worship. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
1: So, well, well, Rev, let me let me say, because I think there's something we've stumbled on in our own conversations about this, that there tends to be that we as a community, you say white and uh, African-American, there tends to be different approaches. And I think what in the church for a lot of white churches tend to be a little headier, a little abstractier. The yeah. worship is what goes on in the mind and you're thinking through things and you and you have a good exegetical sermon um, yep. where. So we, we would misdefine sometimes when good worship is happening. You use this phrase art of worship. I, I don't hear that coming out of white churches very
2: often. No, and let's use this. You guys are, are, are pretty well confident and comfortable if just doing this Zoom or a podcast and saying, we had good church, didn't we? Well, we had good worship. We talked about this person, this this theologian, and we added them in and we threw them in, uh, Bonhoeffer or whoever you want to add in. Sounds good. <laughs> like we had a good time. Black person, said, uh uh-uh, my counterparts who are more heady in nature will sit there and enjoy a good dialogue or conversation and feel like they've had worship experience. Mm. for the black person this is not comfortable or normal uh i used to tell mark all the time i said you know i went to school they taught me greek they taught me uh <laughs> all about hebrew you can sit there all day long and talk about it. you can't bring that into the black church mm. they, they don't know where you're going with this what are you talking about there's some people people who can appreciate anything about it but they're like huh what what mm. i gotta do with jesus and him dying on the cross and him crucified we don't want to even want to know what the word or the letters were above you know just break it down, make it plain to me. Don't don't put it in such a place that I gotta do a whole lot of homework to figure this out. Well, can make I, it can, social.
1: Can I extend this in another direction? Um, and, this, sure. and this is this is something that I've I've also and related to this, is that mm-hmm. when it comes to white culture off times, and I'm I'm using very broad terms, I'm not sure I always agree with them, but let's just use it, white culture as it is, um, responds to things that go on in African American communities specifically, and this is where criminal race theory, critical race yeah. theory comes in. Is that mm-hmm. um, a lot of a lot of European white folks tend to see the, the arguments are being made and tend to connect them logically back to these theories. What you know, what's being talked about is now related back to Marx. It's a very heady, abstract way. Mm-hmm. And then I've talked mm-hmm. to African Americans. I know, and I said, "What do you know about CRT?" And they go, "We don't know what you're talking about." Well, how is it neo-Marxist? That's not where their mind is. But there's some not ideas, at all, right? But there's some ideas here that they find useful, ideas like structure. And, mm-hmm. So, so help help us understand. What we're what we're missing, why, why people tend to want to jump to conclusions when African-American community says, hey, there's structural racism. They say, oh, that's Marxist. What 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 is the what is the white community sometimes missing when we throw that around?
2: You the white community enjoys labeling things and putting them in boxes. You label them and you put them in a box so you can control the narrative. You label them and put them in a box so that you can determine the future of how people are supposed to respond to it. Once you do, then you label and put people and things in boxes Then you feel good because you've categorized it and you can move on. But for the person who's going through the experience, mm. for the person who has that uh, misunderstanding of life for challenges or cultural differences, they struggle with being placed in a box. Uh, for many years, I've had to fill out forms and they want to ask me, are you black or African-American or non-Hispanic or whatever? And what I love to do is pick the box that says other. <laughs> Why? Because you can't define, and I won't let you. And so that throws people off because they, they want to put you in a box. They want to say, well, did you get education? Well, if you didn't get education, then you must be ignorant. Not to mention the many African-Americans that never got past eighth grade because they were sharecroppers or they had to work nine or 10 months out and they could only go to school for three months and got used books and had to read those and try to catch up and still try to live in a society that never respected them. So you you can put us in a box and you can label it, but I bet money uh, the the diversity within the community is so broad that it would not fit what you guys would like to do. So when you talk about critical race theories and when you talk about how people want to talk about us in a Marxism uh, format, it's always interesting to me because that would not uh, be a natural response for an African-American about his church or her church or the community in which they live in. They would not identify as using that language. You guys have gone through and you've done additional studies on this. And now you come back and say, this falls into this category. This falls into this category. And you feel really great about saying that. But if you talk to the average black person, average a uh, young adult or even mature adult, you're not gonna find them uh, speaking in that language or in that context.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you say this, Rev. I think, I think what you're hitting at too, uh, recently heard a, an interview with Jamar Tisby uh, who leads an organization called The Witness, uh, and he was actually doing a review mm-hmm. of the, um, the documentary, PBS documentary that just aired on the Black Church. And he made a very interesting comment, and, and you're actually hitting at it as well, that oftentimes, and Dan and myself and Rev, we, we've all been educated in the academy. We've all studied religion and theology in the mm-hmm. academy. And what Jamar was saying is, when you study the Black Church, there's the academy version of the Black Church, and then what he called the walk mm-hmm. religion. And, and, he, and right. I I never I, I never knew this until he said this. He said that even James Cone, sort of the father of Black Liberation theology, and his brother Cecil yeah. had a different opinion on this. And Cecil was saying, you know, James, you're kind of talking in this abstract academic way, but that's not mm-hmm. really how it gets practiced on the ground. And and so exactly. and even some days you could say that about Cornell West. I mean, Cornell West did write mm-hmm. an article comparing black theology to Marxism, right? He, he, he's a black scholar. He wrote that. Uh, but what you're saying is, yeah, but on the ground, that's not what's going on.
2: Not at all. Yeah. And we have to def- we have to redefine. I read, Cohn is probably one of my favorite theologians because it really resonates with me. But if you can listen to where Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. was talking about of the black church, it's not different from Cone. It's just a different observation of it from what he would, one might say is from the ground or the grassroots mm-hmm, uh, conversation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, even as I was encouraging my congregation, I said, you need to look at this video. And then in addition to the video, I want you to go buy the book. Okay, go go, go buy the book and then look at the video and this put the, the, the key two worlds together. And, and to the, read, book
0: by, right? the book the that, book that goes along with it. Yeah, right.
2: So I'm sharing that with them, trying to help them to gain knowledge and insight and, and depth in this conversation. But at the same time, they're, they're also saying, but what is, the, what is the church for them? The, the church is, it, it's, it's communal, it's tribal. It's a different set of um, tenets and protocols that we use to survive. As you may recall, the Black church was the one place where Black people could congregate by law. We couldn't gather anywhere else. The law would have locked us up. That's why we had so much trouble with those, uh, you know, um, s- civil uh, marches and um, moments when time where they would do protests because they could easily uh, call us vagrants. They could easily say that we didn't want to work we didn't, and lock us up for whatever reason. And the transition causes us great pain because we don't have another place that we can look at that just embraced everything for us. See, the church was our tutorial system. Mm -hmm. The mature adults would teach the young people how to read and write. The church was a tutorial because they said, you don't know how to fill out the FASTA form, we're going to arrange. Uh, When I was going to my church in in Maywood, Illinois, uh, our pastor's wife, who was a professor at a college, came back and taught us how to prepare for the SAT and the PSAT test in the church. Not in the neighborhood, not in the church. So if you wanted to get a promotion on a job or want to learn something, we were the ones writing letters on behalf, but we were the ones trying to encourage you to to improve or better one's life. We had one member in the church where I grew up in, he started at the the local bank as a janitor and he worked his way up to the vice president of the bank with hardly any collegiate training, just going through the seminars and the training, worked himself up from a janitor to the vice president of the bank. We held this man up like he was a demigod at every major event in the community because of what we saw. Hard work paid off. Being commit, uh, having integrity and being trusted paid off. So we practiced those tenets that we thought the Bible had endorsed. You know, working hard, being honest, not lying, not having committing adultery, not cheating on people, not backstabbing. You know, all that stuff. We embraced it. But when we tried to employ it with our white counterparts, it didn't come back. I told somebody just last night, black folks are one of the strangest people. We love everyone, everybody we love. We we don't reject anyone, but the white counterparts can look at us and know that we're trying to share wisdom, love and anything else. And still they could reject us. And that hurts more than most people even understand. Hmm.
1: So, and and, and the way you're describing this, and I, I know, it's part of the dialogue. We're trying to, we're trying to differentiate white and African-American and things. But you're, you, one thing that you've, and I, I talking with Mark about your book, this idea of reconciliation and restoration mm-hmm. is a place we have to both share. And mm-hmm. if, if, you could, if you could carve that space out or say, what, what does the space look like where we get to restore the relationships, where we get to um, you know, reconcile, what, what would that space look like? What, what kind of things do we need to do to help bridge the gap so we can actually talk to one another um, in ways that are meaningful rather than just ways at each other?
2: Um, one of the things that our congregation is going through right now is a book called Be the Bridge by mm-hmm. Latasha Morrison. I don't know if you're familiar with her.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, but she wrote a book. And so in the book is also a leadership training session. So um, 10 people from the two congregations I work with, Hope Presbyterian, which is predominantly white, and Bethel New Life, which is African-American, went through the leadership training together. And we're now breaking out and training or leading other people through book discussions about this, about how we can reconcile. See the Bible calls us, say we're, we're, um, all of us have been called to reconcile, right? We're ministers of reconciliation, right? So with that mentality, we go back and say, how do I talk about that between African Americans and the white cultures? The first thing I believe in is to educate, to have conversation, to sit together in circles, not at desks, not facing forward, but looking at each other, working together and listening. In this session, Latasha Morrison suggests that the very first week is a white-only session. Only the white people get to meet. And they talk about 16 principles that are challenging to the white people across the board about how you deal with Uh, the white fragility? How do you deal with uh, white privilege? How do you deal with all those other concerns? So the white group just talks by themselves and calls each other out. I've seen this, I heard this, I know this, and they work towards a a commonality. Then we introduce the African-Americans into the next week, and then we talk together, and we talk about awareness. How do I know you have a problem if I'm not aware that you even exist? How do I know you have an issue or your children are struggling if I don't even recognize you as a full human being. Remember the constitution in the early stages, three fifths a person. Some people still believe that to be true. They still believe that the African-Americans don't have any rights, don't have any privileges, should not necessarily be granted anything or afforded anything. So when you have that mentality, it's very hard to come and have a conversation. So you have to sit down and you have to work through those, those um, initial, I call them difficult moments where you don't walk away and everyone's always smiling. You don't walk away and everyone's saying, oh, this was a wonderful meeting. We just had a great time. You walk away and you feel like crap. You feel like this was terrible. Like I, my people did this. We are the recipients of that. And you talk and you wrestle with it, but you don't hurt each other. A spirit of reconciliation, I believe, is the opportunity for me to hear you and to say, I recognize you as a person and I give you a chance to share your story. And then you listen to me share my story and then we say, how can we live together in this world to, uh, to get to that
0: point? Let me ask you this question, Rev. Um, you used mm-hmm. two terms here, white privilege, white fragility. Uh, of course, there was a book mm-hmm. that was on the New York Times bestseller, Amazon bestseller this summer called White Fragility. Um, yep,
2: that's who we use. We use yep. our book first. And, when
0: and, 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 and what I've experienced when talking to people, uh, not always people have read the book, but they've seen the title. Uh, some people have read the book and 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 there's this recoiling uh, of 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 for white people oftentimes of being referred to in that way that's saying, well, I don't think I have privilege or I don't think I'm fragile. Um, how me how many process how you respond to that? I, I you know I other than the that's, book. That's you know? <laughs> yeah.
2: It's a difficult conversation and terms they're used and brought out. Then they're brought into terms uh, that people have to start to figure out or wrestle with. You don't always appreciate the conversation until you've had some time with it. I don't believe that a white group is going to walk away and say, yes, I have white fragility. Yes, I have white. I don't believe that on the top. I believe after much discussion and dialogue about what does that mean and what does that mean in today's terms? Uh, when we were talking about Black Lives Matters, uh, nobody wanted to talk about it. They were scared of it. They were, uh, uh, the group I was working with was scared of the politics of it. What does that mean? What are you saying? We don't matter. We're not important. We're not. We're not. No, no, no. All lives matter. Yes, that is true. Number two, because of the way this world is currently designed and operated in these United States, we have to say that Black Lives Matter because of the abuse of the. Of the of the police system, the abuse of the judicial system of the abuse of the redlining districts of how you can live and, and raise your family systems because of the um, systemic racism that does exist in this country, we do have to highlight that black lives matter to help bring attention to the other situations. I don't walk around here and think I'm better than you. I don't walk around here and say I'm greater than you. What I say is that you don't have to be pulled over by the side of the road and be potentially shot by a police officer like I might. You may never get pulled over by the side of the road and never be challenged about how fast you're going. Is your tail light out? Uh, let me check your license. Let me see your your, um, your insurance card. You may never experience that. But I every day have an option where somebody might walk up to me and do something to me just because they don't like me.
1: I've, I've heard in these conversations when we talk about things like this and you say white fragility and mm-hmm. structural and, and we use the term white we it sort of for a lot of people homogenizes all white people are this way just because you're white and you say well the African-Americans you've got you've got critical race Marxists in here you've got mm-hmm. you know, black mm-hmm. nationalists Islamists you've got so there's a lot of variety um, and you say well yeah but those don't apply to us because as African-Americans we don't we're Christians we don't believe that so one of the arguments is if, if the black community is heterogeneous, you don't want to say everyone that espouses structural racism is a Marxist. Some, some African-American leaders are, but most aren't. Is it, is yes. it, is it yeah. any different than saying but if you're white, all white communities belong to white fragility or all white communities? I mean, it seems like it seems like one group is heterogeneous and the other group is a bit homogenous or...
2: Uh, Dan, I think that's the mistake. That's the mistake. You can't say that and legitimize your position. Um, every cultural group is heterogeneous in nature, yeah. every cultural group. So well, let's start with that premise first. Secondly, you could say that some groups may have a majority who think like this or a minority who think like that. That would be your next level. Then you'd go down and possibly a third tier and try to say, well, there's some people operating on their own <laughs> plane. Right. They're doing their own thing, doesn't fit in any box. And if you tried, you couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. You know? So you'd have to be careful. And I. As a person, I was assistant professor for intercultural studies at the college. So my position is be careful in in grouping people and and labeling things so quickly and so easily. Uh, I, I believe that although you and Mark have talked about studying similar things in history, his perspective and your perspective may yet be different. You may have come under the same tutelage of the same overseer of your work, but yet your interpretation is different. Why lump you together in order to make a point? Mm. Why not respect the fact that you come to the table with a different set of tools and skills, and so does he? Why not say that uh, the people who study history from a religious perspective totally have a different perspective than one another, instead of saying you all think like this? You know, it it can be, It, it can be. And I think it's a misnomer to go down that road to say to one another, that all black people would think this way or all white people think that way. Yeah, yeah. That's why this discussion that we're having today and others, I, I relish, I look for it because I love to to dispel the, the rumors and the confusion that exists. There's no such thing as all black people think the same way, all black churches say. No, we have different varieties just like you guys do. Right, it, well,
1: it, that's, it, and that's it, so, I'm sorry, Mark, but I just think that's helpful because I think what you said earlier about boxes, I think, and I, I think it's sometimes innocently done I think sometimes it's maliciously done. I think yes. innocently to not understand something. And and I I often I think what I found in my own studies is that reductionism is probably the is the human sin at the base. We reduce Amen. everything <laughs> down, to <a, laughs> and it makes sense to us, right? Everything has to fit the category. Uh, but that's really harmful, you know. When it when it comes down to pegging people or boxing them, and not mm-hmm. be able to hear, oh, there's another way to think about it. Oh, you have a different perspective. So I, I agree with you. I, I think these conversations are really helpful in that regard. Mark, I, well, I didn't think,
0: think, no no it, it it goes back to I think. How we're kind of trained, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, oftentimes in the academy, we're trained in in uh, you know, so logical syllogisms and things like that. And, and oftentimes, and, and even we've talked about this and how African American theology evolved and developed. It was far more from it was pragmatic uh, versus okay, let's have a debate on justification by faith. Exactly. And I remember when I was. Um, I don't know, right out of high school, I was working for uh, the city of Philadelphia. And oftentimes, I would be the only white guy on the crew. And, and I remember, you know, we're, we're working down uh, in Philly down by um, Chinatown. And we're having this conversation about privilege. And they're like, you know, mm-hmm. even though we're all shoveling here together, shoveling mulch, you still have privilege I don't have. And, you know, as a, as, a, as an 18 year old kid, I just couldn't wrap my head around that. And so they said, Guy said, well, we're going to show you what we mean. (laughs) I said, okay. (laughs) We're we're going to lunch together. Mm -hmm. We're going to go in the store. And and they said, and we want you to watch the manager. Right. You watch the manager. And notice who the manager's watching. Mm -hmm. Is he watching you or is he watching us? Mm Mm-hmm. And so it was this weird thing, right? Because I'm staring at the manager, the manager's staring at them, and 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 nobody knows. You know, we we know we're in on it, and mm-hmm. and, and the joke was, I said, you know, you could probably fill your coat with exactly. our lunch and walk out, <laughs> and, and he's not going to bother you. Uh, he might not even he all. might even say hello to you while you're walking out with your with this stuff, and and, and so that was you know, so there's a case where you know you can't really kind of. What do you do, a sociological experiment where you know you send white people into, into grocery stores? Um, but I, I mean, that was sort of a, a, an eye-opening experience that when I would go into the store with my colleagues in certain neighborhoods in Philly, I could you could see the manager who he was watching, yet we all worked together, we all came in the same truck, you know, we, we might've bought the same thing. Uh, but I saw it, I, I did, I did, I, I can't unsee
2: it. Well, Let's talk about the, 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 I guess it's a YouTube video now that has the white woman with the dog in the park and the black guy calls the police on her and, you know, he tells her, not police originally, tells her, ma'am, your dog is not allowed here. The sign says that. She gets mad because he is talking to her about her being disobedient to the rules of the land. She then says, I'm going to call the police on you And she gets on the phone and she calls the police and says, I'm going to tell them that I'm being harassed by an African-American. And he's threatening. She calls and makes this, you know, this call to the police, formalizes this charge against him on the phone. And she gets called into the court system, right? Because now she's fabricated this story. This, this black man was not threatening her. He wasn't doing anything. In fact, he was videotaping her at the same time that she was doing all of this stuff to prove his point. She gets criticized and mocked on TV and other sh- shows. But just the other week, they say that she had originally lost her job. But just the other week, they said the judge dropped the case on this individual who formulated a false claim on this man. I don't know if you heard about this. I don't know if you've seen this video, but this is the kind of stuff I'm talking about happens in the world to us all the time. The man sitting in the park saying, ma'am, you're not following the sign that we all have to follow. Mm. And she says, well, I'm above the sign. I'm bringing my dog here anyway. And in fact, I'm going to call the police on you. And I'm going to tell them that you are threatening black men. This is not the first time this has happened. Mm. But yet she gets away Maybe she loses her job, but in a year or so, nobody will remember this even happened to her. They'll go on, adapt to a new situation, a new town, a new name. She'll go on with her life. But if a black man does something wrong, he's got a record, he's got a a, a system where they got to check on him, go in and pee in a urine cup and get traced and tracked so that we should never drop any blood anywhere, any urine, we will know it's you. What? And you have this track record in her cases thrown out and dropped and moved on. It sounds simple, but it's a reality of the world in which we live in. The Black church has been comforting for years Black people who have been mistreated, comforting for years those who have been uh, ostracized by the larger community. Mark, those people who were talking to you are correct. You could have loaded up your coat, walked away with a ton of food, and the manager would not have bothered you. But one of those men Picked up a Twinkie or a, a donut ho ho, whatever, and looked like he might have put it in his pocket, or looked like he was holding it too long, or looked like he was holding it funny. He would have got picked up, charged, and removed as and a that's, lesson that's to that's the exactly, other black men. That's exactly
0: that. what these guys were trying to show me, you know, and yeah, you know, it was and and so. One of the one of the things I, I kind of want to ask both of you this question, and then and then mm-hmm. I want to shift gears a little bit to to talk about your book, Ref, because I think it ties sure. into some of this. Um, do you think some of this too is, is is how Dan, you and I talk about this as historians is how we construct our narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and 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 in historical situations, we we know right that you could have two people out of situation, and they're going to interpret those narratives very differently. Um, I, I wonder. Uh, part of the the racial reconciliation part of and, and again in the church right I expect the church to get this right I don't expect pagans right but I do expect the church to get this right I mean that's that's what Galatians is about
2: or even some religious colleges and universities yeah that's but,
0: but anyway um do you think some of this is how we're constructing our narratives that that, that's kind of the question Yeah, i mean i I
1: think it is and i I think this is where you know there's a lot of misunderstanding i don't don't think that there's not you know moral failure and wrong i would certainly say there is but i think there's also i mean i just know in a lot of rural communities there's no interactions with Mm african-americans very little so it's Mm -hmm. here on the news and you got cnn going this way and fox going this way and and whatever whatever narrative you believe tends to then determine the facts for you and i I think for and I think there's enough facts to make every, na- like, strain every narrative, right? We can't, we don't know how to hold this all together. But, you know, mm-hmm. for, for someone in a white community to say, look, most most crime is Black on Black, or most homicides Black on Black, then that forms the narrative. Well, now these are the problems that are already there. And so when cops get involved, it's already way down the road when there's all these problems. Um, but of course, for African-Americans living in this community, see something very different. And I think these narratives, you're right, do sort of they 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 teach you how to think of it before the event even happens, right? And then you're sort right, of out right. of it. And and I think either side doesn't listen to whatever the whatever those narratives are, maybe for good reason. But really, it's really hard to hear it because you know how this already works. Um, and I don't well, I don't know, I don't know the way through that because it's very hard to cut through a narrative. <laughs> but, very-
2: uh, you know, Dan, you you use a term that I've been struggling with for some time, black on black crack. And I used to say this all the time. I said, if I am a Black man and live in a Black community and the only place I'm allowed to go is in a Black community, basically, yeah, if I'm going to shoot somebody nine times out of ten, it's going to be a Black person. Um, uh, if you're a white person in a predominantly white community, we never hear white on white crime, do you? Hmm. You don't hear that term, do you? But nine times out of ten, of a white person going to do something, he's going to do it in a white community. When Enron went bad, that was a white person doing it white but we don't hear that, do we? We don't hear language like that. In order to make us as African-Americans look bad and sound bad, we create terminology, we create conversation to make everything we do, whether it's eating this food or living in this community or wearing these clothes, a bad thing. But as soon as Michael Jackson wears it, it's the jacket everybody's got to have. Soon as somebody, even if, you know, even if it's only pleather. That's it.
0: Yeah.
2: But if you never see this, this same dynamic when uh, you're talking about, I told somebody, I said, who was it that uh, killed those people in South Carolina, in Charleston? It was a white man mm. who killed black people. Mm. I said, who blew up that post office, right? It was a white man, McVeigh, right? Yeah, McVeigh. Killing all these people. I mean, but we don't hear white on white crime. It exists. If you're surrounded by white people, the night, Times out of ten, the person you're going to shoot, or stab, or rob is white. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. We only talk about if I'm only surrounded by black people because you don't want me around you. The person I'm going to rob is going to be somebody that look like me.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: well, I think even, this, this goes to the point. I think with the, the narrative, right? Once you yes. once you determine the narrative of how this works, then every fact just gets gets defined by the narrative that you have. walking into. Exactly. And mm-hmm. I think this goes back to something you were saying at the beginning when I was asking was you say listening, and I I I think I found that to be very potent because when you listen, you 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 hear things you can't plug into your narratives. At some point, mm-hmm. you've got it. You've got to listen long enough. And I think people do a lot of active listening. I think we had that mark someone here at LBC saying, if I remember, his coach, Therington, um, our female coach, listening doesn't mean talking while you're listening. <laughs> it means quietly <laughs> listen. It means listening <laughs> to the things you don't you don't know what to do with. You don't know how to mm-hmm. uh, from, from all sides you have to actually listen. And I think I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but to me, that's the problem. There it is. It teaches you not to listen.
2: Yeah, well those, you, you've like got to you have... be careful with the narrative, right? The mm. narratives is, is what you got to listen to. Listen to the narrative.
0: Mm.
2: When I watch the video on the black church as a black person, I listen to the narrative. I listen to what they're saying. And I said to myself, yes, either I agree or no, that isn't the way we do. Uh, and then when I come to work and I work in the predominantly white communities, I listen to how they talk.
0: Well, and I think too, there's the narrative thing. One thing I'll say is when I when I tell the story um about my experience mm-hmm. the, the weird thing about that is w- where i grew up it was a predominantly white i mean philadelphia was very segregated so it was a, it was a white i mean it was very segregated i was in i grew up in the white jewish section right you know versus mm. the white catholic section Shalom. um and but when i had that experience with my with my coworkers um it was maybe a 25 minute drive from my house.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like it wasn't like even going to, it wasn't a, a distance. It wasn't a long distance. It was probably no more than 12, 15 miles from my door. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the way we were, I was kind of catechized, the way I was raised and understood, it was different. So Rev, let, let's, let's shift a little bit because you, okay. your, your title of your book, uh, it's in your response. Mm-hmm. I love that and, and and talk to us a little bit about how you came to that title came to that book because I think that ties into this right because it's we can we, we've had this opportunity where we've talked about okay here's the problems right yeah. and, and here's the hurt and here's the pain and and how do we get to and how do we it. respond to that and then yeah. how do we get to a point of where we actually start to see some healing right and that's really what well, this book is about it's about healing
2: exactly and if I, if I go back to it, I'll say in the year 2002, I pastored my very first church. And in the very first year, I was dealing with inner city African-Americans who were struggling and they were having one issue after another. And I kept saying, OK, we got to talk about another way to to respond to the issue of the day. And so I came up with a sermon in that early year, uh, first year, excuse me, that talked about it's in your response. You may have life's challenges come your way, but. How do you respond to what, what do you choose to do to make your life better versus just always playing the victim card? Um, so in 2014, I was challenged by a system that removed me from an employment after 14 years of service. After 14 years of service, I, I didn't know which way to turn. One week after being asked to leave there, they then turned my paperwork over to the, the police department And the police called me in. the detective met with me and they began to charge me with things that I was like, what, what is going on here? And then from there, went through another 10 months of court cases, going back and forth, back and forth, uh, hiring a lawyer, trying to go back and forth and figure it out. And yet I was pastoring a church uh, and unemployed from the university. my, My mindset was just disoriented. This was almost five years ago. And so I began to write sermons and in, in conversations with people, led me to a mindset of saying, how do I help myself figure out what is my best response? And I was trying to say, if I put this together, I might be able to help somebody else. So five years later, we're now in a pandemic, and I'm sitting around here with all this free time. And I began to sit there and say to myself, let me go back and let me take excerpts from those sermons. Let me go back and think about how I was feeling and what I was going through, through those five years where I felt um, alone, banished, despondent, um, hopeless, and just wanted to cry and turn in a corner and and crawl into a ball, you know? And so with all that being said, God spoke to me in the midnight hours (laughs) and would give me these messages of hope for the people I was serving. So although I'm writing these sermons and excerpts out of, and looking at things, I'm, I'm thinking about the people I'm serving. And then he was saying to me, if it's good for you to tell them, it's good for you to hear. So it's go back to this listening, Dan. It goes back to this conversation, listening. As much as I'm preparing and getting these things ready to share with other people, he's yet speaking to me mm. about what I was feeling in my, in my state of being lost. Mm. And so, for this season of going through this pandemic, I began to go back through uh, 20 plus years of sermons, mm. going back through 20 plus years of, of lectures and Sunday school lessons and things that I prepared and put together. And I said, what could I say to help somebody? Mm. How do I inspire and motivate somebody? So it's in your response is my, is my response to my life situations. But I wanted to say, I don't want to just write a book that's a, uh, autobiographical graphical picture of me. I need to do something to inspire somebody. When you're down on the ground and you see that things are not going well, how do you get up? How do you stand up? Mm-hmm. And so I began to think about the things I did. Service, volunteerism, things that I could do to contribute back to society. Uh, I would go visit the sick and the shunned. I would go do things to do for other folks instead of swallowing in my own self-pity. So I would figure out those kind of things. And then at the same time, I would be wrestling with myself. Well, you're not a bad person. If you made a mistake, it's a mistake. You're not a, a, a totally disturbed individual. How do you get back into life? So as Abram became Abraham, as you know, Jacob became Israel, uh Ronald Bochamp became our Keith Bochamp try to kill that which was before in order that I might live for the future. I had to say that all that I had that baggage that I lived with that was weighing me down and caused me to, to look at myself in the mirror with a, a you know puppy eyes and not feeling good about it. I said, let us destroy that. Let us look to what it could be. If I serve a awesome God a mighty God, then I need to, excuse me, fellas, because this is my rib side, I would feel that my spirit would say, Father, I stretch my hand to thee, no other help I know. If thou withdraw thyself from me, oh, where shall I go? So I began to go back into those messages, go back and study uh, uh, Howard Thurman, go back and study uh, Dr. King, go back and look at John Lewis, go back and look at those people that served, go back and read uh, Malcolm X again and study how they survived when the odds were against them. How do you survive? And so I began to sit down and say to myself, I can't be the only person going through this. I cannot be the only person experiencing this part of life. And as I began to sit down and pen these words, I began to see revelation. I began to see a cathartic side of my story come to life. As much as I fell down and I was sitting there thinking I was burden for my, my wife and my children, I never wanted to give up on life, but I didn't know how to get back in there and become a part of life. So even to be called today to share with you guys, the day before, to share with you on this podcast, Is one of those renewable moments in my journey. Mm. One of those moments where it says, you still have something to offer. You have something to share. God has endowed you with knowledge. You've earned two masters. You have two doctorates, and was working on the third one when all of this went down. You're nobody's dummy. You're not useless. You're useful. How do you take that and make it helpful for the less fortunate, for those who might have a lot? There's a lot of intelligent people that sit around me and don't know my past, but they're sitting around me asking me questions because they want to know how did you do that? Why would you go back and get work on a third doctrine? Why would you go back and want to go through? Wasn't one dissertation enough for you? Wasn't one thesis in the master program enough? Yeah, no. Is, yeah. <laughs> awesome as it is, yeah. Reb likes to stick
0: his hand I'm in the sand. Agree with you on that, Reb. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, <laughs> Rob, Let me let me ask you this question. Yeah. You said something, and, and having read the book it seems like you had to get to a place in this where one you were okay with for allowing yourself to be forgiven yes yes that, that, you, have, you have to start there you have to start off there. the page and then something you said that was really cool that i think gets at this is how do i help myself but when i read the book it it's it's Rev saying part of helping myself was letting god help me thank you you know, yeah. it was it was it, mm-hmm. it was uh And and it makes me think when we get to restoration too, Dan and and Rev, I think that so much of this is the listening is important, but I wonder if when we go into these things, we go into these conversations with our narratives, Mm -hmm. are we really going in there asking God, okay, God, help me see this? Thank
2: you. Or am I going
0: into these conversations with I already know how I think this is going to play out. And, and so, but I'll go through the motions because, you know, I, I don't want to be a white supremacist or I don't want to be uh, uh, a CRT person.
2: So I'll, I'll yeah. go through the process. Um, that's exactly what this is like. Yeah. And that's what I was looking at. I needed help first. Uh, I go back to that same council mentality until so you are willing to admit there's a problem, it's hard to get healing or deliverance. You have to start there. I have a problem, I have an issue. Let me deal with my personal problem first and and then say, God, I need forgiveness. If I've hurt anyone or let alone myself, please forgive me. Mm -hmm. I am still your preacher. I'm still your child. Right. I have to go back there and cleanse and amend, ask for atonement and move forward. As you're going through that, you said, now, Lord, you did not take me through that badly like experience so I can just talk about it by myself. You took me through that valley-like experience so that I could help others. Hmm. I've never done any work or done any job Why I didn't help book allowed me to go back and say, you know, what you went through was, was, wasn't was for, for vainglory. It wasn't to come back and say, oh, didn't I write a wonderful book? Oh, didn't I do this? It hmm. wasn't that. It was, to, it was to go back and look at my story and say, just like you wrote about Noah in the Bible, just like you wrote about David. David had flaws. Noah had flaws. They said Noah was drunken, right? Two sons came in walking backwards. They didn't want to see his father, but one laughed at him, right? David was uh, uh, you know, stole uh, the wife, uh, uh, the man next door watching her from the balcony. Got all excited. Well, because he did what he did to Bathsheba, God, uh, you know, told David that child's going to die. So we each, in our own way, maybe you guys have your own stories, have gone through something where we were challenged, criticized by God, even pushed by God to say, "Are you still gonna do what's right even though you have an issue. And so I went back and I wrestled with myself. When I was talking to the publishing company about this, they kept saying, well, do you wanna do that? I had to hire a lawyer to say, what can I say? Or what can't I say? So I don't become an offensive writer. I wanna be able to tell truth, but I want people to understand, I'm not trying to agitate or irritate anybody, but I need to tell my story to help you understand how you can uh, stand up. I think
0: this is a good way to kind of wrap things up. And I think that what I'm pulling away from this is um, in this whole conversation, uh, Dr. Beauchamp, Dr. Spanger, um, when we're talking about reconciliation of any sort, personal, mm-hmm. uh, but particularly in racial, maybe one of the big problems is it's hard for all the parties to agree there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Bingo. <laughs> you know, it's 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 um, maybe you know we're we're and 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 possibly again I'm, I'm kind of thinking out loud in this is it do we throw out some of these create these narratives or throw out some of these uh invectives at each other just to prevent us from having to admit there's a problem um and that that could be where we need to spend our time as the church is just focusing mm-hmm. on hey, there's a problem, and whether you b- want to believe it or not, you've got brothers and sisters in Christ who surely think there is, mm-hmm. and and how do you hear that? And,
2: Let's not be dismissive.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, well, Rev, thank you so much. This has wow. been awesome. I enjoyed this. Um, I can't guarantee he's going to get any more sales on your book. <laughs> I mean, our moms <laughs> listen to this, but that's kind of it. So, <laughs> Uh, Actually, my mom doesn't even listen to it. She doesn't have internet. So (laughs) mom doesn't want the internet. And so, um, but anyway, thank you so much for this. This was good. This was so good.
2: Yeah, thanks for your time
1: and thanks for your transparent conversation. I find it very edifying and helpful.
2: No problem. I appreciate, again, the opportunity to share. You guys have been great. Uh, I hope somebody listens to us. That's it. (laughs) I know. Your hope is what we need right now, Dr. Bush. All right.
0: Thank you for spending time with us and listening to this podcast. We hope that it has helped you negotiate living in the city of man. Be sure to check out our website, unlikelypilgrims.com, where you can find blogs, book recommendations, podcasts, and vlogs. You can also check us out at Facebook at unlikelypilgrims.com. You can follow us on Twitter at unlikelypilgrims at the city of God.